And good morning, everyone, or good evening, whatever the case may be, wherever you are around this rotating globe. I just hope you're not in Australia tonight because um, things are really bad. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking about for the next three hours. Not only the bad part, but the good part, which is what we can do about it. And that's going to take up a very interesting conversation because I'm introducing tonight some new elements from the traditional conversations I've had with my guest, Dane Wigington. But before we get to all that, let me hit a couple of news items. Um, I don't know whether you guys were up at the early crack of dawn uh, this morning, but um, there was an event at Cape Canaveral that we're going to talk about momentarily. Before we get to that, however, I want you to go to Radio with Pictures. You know how to get there. You can click on tonight's banner at the other side of midnight.com. Click on the banner for Sunday, January 19th, where it says, is Australia burning? Question mark. And why? That will take you to the guest page. Right under the top of the page, you will find fast links under the banner. Click on my items that will take you to the radio with pictures in my section. Item number one, there's something very peculiar going on in the heavens. Okay. Um, it is... Uh, uh, Betelgeuse. As you know, we've been watching Betelgeuse um, do its weird thing. It seems to be getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And this was followed by uh, uh, many years ago, uh, the Nobel laureate Charlie Towns said that he had measured with the interferometers on, um, on um, uh, Mount Wilson the idea that it was actually shrinking, physically shrinking. In something like 15 years, they measured the actual optical diameter in the infrared and it had shrunk by about 15%, which given the enormous size of this red supergiant Betelgeuse is equivalent to the diameter, I'm sorry, the radius of the orbit of Venus. So, I mean, this was a cascade of very bizarre events. Well, a few days ago, on the 14th of January, which is, what, five days ago, the LIGO and Virgo gravitational wave detectors in Italy and in the United States, in Louisiana and in um, uh, Washington State, detected a gravitational wave of unknown origin. And when they did their plots, which they can do from speed of light and geometric calculations and all that, because these aren't telescopes that are actually looking at the sky like an optical or a radio telescope. Um, they narrowed it down to a couple regions, one of which was very close to the position in the sky of Betelgeuse. And everybody jumped all over this and Twitter lit up and you know, astronomers started turning big telescopes, professional observatories around the world in the direction of Betelgeuse, because you know, that, of course, the scuttlebutt is that Betelgeuse might be about to go supernova. If it did, it would emit what's called a burst-type gravitational wave, at least that's in the models, and uh, it would very quickly, within hours, uh, if the core collapsed, which is the model that they're working from in these supercomputers, the shock wave would be racing at close to the speed of light toward the outer envelope, the photosphere of this huge bloated star, which occupies, you know, if you put it where the sun is, it would, again, the surface would be out somewhere between Mars and Jupiter. And then we would see the burst of light. We would see all the cascades of energy, the shock waves and the outer, you know, material being hurled outward at thousands of miles per second. And it would glow in the sky as a brilliant, searing, carusicating, you can all look that up, point of light, meaning it would change all the colors of the rainbow because of atmospheric scintillation and refraction. And it would be a stunning sight, and it would be brighter or as bright as a full moon. It would be visible in daytime for probably a year or so, and visible at night for several years before, you know, fading to where Betelgeuse and the right shoulder of the incredibly interesting and geometric constellation of Orion would be optically no more. You would need a telescope to see it as it shrank to a uh, 
white dwarf, or given its mass, I mean, something like 20 times the mass of the sun, it may actually, you know, collapse into a black hole, in which case all kinds of other interesting things would go on. Well, astronomers, of course, are just dying to see all this happen in their lifetime and to be able to bring to bear all the uh, accoutrements of modern astronomical and astrophysical science. Well, so far, I've been out the other night and I looked and I, I didn't have time tonight to go look, but everybody I looked at on Twitter, they say it's still there, which means whatever this gravity wave anomaly was, it was not Betelgeuse blowing up, at least not yet. Since we know so little of how supernova form, uh, this could be a precursor event, and there also was the problem that it wasn't these these kind of locations they derived geometrically from the gravity wave detectors was not right on Betelgeuse. It was kind of shifted by a couple of degrees to one side. So the jury is still out. I would, however, before you go to bed, if you can see the northern hemisphere and see the sky, you know, just kind of go outside next few nights, weeks, whatever, and make sure it's still there. Something extraordinary could be happening. Okay, moving on to item number two in Radio with Pictures in my items tonight. This morning, as I said a moment ago, if you were up at around uh, 10.30 in the morning, Eastern Time, um, uh, SpaceX launched a a crew escape test for the uh, Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon spacecraft. And it went off perfectly without a hitch. Uh, the Falcon 9 lifted it up to like uh, 50, 100,000 feet, I forget the exact altitude, and then the sensors on board shut down the Falcon 9's nine engines. They coasted a moment. They then lit up the so-called Super Draco engines that are to push the spacecraft away from the booster in case there's an anomaly, in case it's going to blow up, which it it actually did because um, it had no streamlining front. It had no attitude control, and so as it kind of you know whipped around sideways in the airstream, even at that altitude, moving at that great speed, um, it, it wound up uh, exploding in a very vigorous fireball. If you click on that link, item number two, there's a really cool video of all this. And I had to change this link a couple times because for several hours after the test, nobody, not even SpaceX, was posting the video. Um, and I was kind of curious about that, and then they all kind of caught up. And this is a kind of an interesting prelude to um, item number three, the SpaceX moon passenger. Remember how a few months ago Elon Musk stood there in the uh, Hawthorne facility of SpaceX in California and introduced Yusaku Maizawa, who is a very famous, uh, used to be a rock musician, now he's into some other kind of commerce, and he's also given a great deal of money to SpaceX to become the first tourist to fly around the moon in Musk's tune-to-be-flown starship somewhere around 2023, I think, is the is the now-announced date. And uh, he's going to be taking six to eight artists with him in this extraordinary flight which is not going to land. It's just going to loop around the moon like a free return Apollo trajectory of 50 years plus ago and then come back to Earth. But the but the sights are going to be extraordinary. I mean, little do they know, or maybe Musk does know, that when they look out the windows and they point all their cameras and they use their binoculars and telescopes, they're going to see this incredible panoply of glistening ancient glass ruins all over the moon and hopefully by that time 2023 we will have made inroads to where they will be looking we are doing things behind the scenes and uh, I will give you updates as we make progress now what's really intriguing is that uh, Maizawa has said that he does not want to go to the moon alone he wants to go with a girlfriend. Apparently, he doesn't have a current girlfriend, or she has no interest in going into space or looping around the moon. So he has set up a kind of reality television um, show, reality show, 
where he's going to entertain potential applicants and he they will be selected as part of a contest like you know the bachelor or the uh, uh whatever all those you know stupid game shows are that basically put people up for sale and so far and this is a really extraordinary almost shocking number he has over 20,000 women who have applied to be in this contest to ultimately be his girlfriend his selected significant lunar other in his trip around the moon. Now, there are a lot of people out there who are really, really down on this guy. You know, like, can he get a date on his own? He's a billionaire. Why? You know, that kind of nonsense. Frankly, I think this is a very positive thing, and I'll tell you why. One of the big impediments to democratizing space, to getting, quote, ordinary folks to pay attention is to get ordinary folks to pay attention. You know, it's out there, we're down here. You know, the odds against any individual being able to go into space, an ordinary American, an ordinary Russian, an ordinary, you know, Japanese citizen, an ordinary Chinese citizen is minuscule. Minuscule. You know, you can measure it on, well, you can't even measure it on one hand. By doing this, what, what Maizawa has done, is to open up the conversation and you know that you know running a dating game in outer space is the quickest way to get an awful lot of people's attention and then of course you can tell them all the other stuff including you know the television coverage that will be following the flight you know the details of of their relationship in space i mean just think of the the Megan and Harry story on steroids that's what Maizawa is setting up, and I'm not sure it isn't being done with great strategic planning to accomplish precisely this, the democratization of access to outer space, which, of course, is what Musk is, is all about. Okay, that's the, uh, that's the news, as Fulton Lewis used to say. Um, my next item is getting into the thrust of tonight's program with uh, my guest. Number four is a USA-Australia comparison, a size comparison. This ran on, I think, uh, one of the one of the uh, maybe Reddit, Soylent, whatever. And Americans apparently reacting were shocked to see the comparison, not of the fires but of the size of Australia compared to the continental United States. For some reason, and it may have to do with Mercator map projections or you know, people aren't just paying attention to geography, which is not really taught in school anymore, but the size of Australia, which is burning, is the size of the continent we are living on tonight, us fellow Americans. Of course, we talk to the world, as you saw from our ratings, we are very up there in the ratings, which I'm very glad to to, uh, to see. If you go to number six, item number six, and click on that, this is an actual numerical comparison of the scale of the Australian fires. Uh, there's maps there showing the locations of uh, uh, hotspots determined from satellite analysis, infrared and visible. And then there are some statistics. Let me just, this is staggering. As of January 7th, this now is what, two weeks old, Approximately 32,400 square miles, an area a little smaller than Indiana, have burned since the blazes began in uh, Australia's fall. That's 5,000 square miles, an area about the size of Connecticut, more than the area being burned in 2019 during the devastating Amazon rainforest fires. And get this, 80 times larger than the total area burned in the 2019 California fires. This is a catastrophe, a slow motion catastrophe in motion right before our eyes, which leads me to introduce tonight's guest. Uh, Dane Wigington has been on the show many times before. He has a background in solar energy. He is a former employee of the Bechtel Power Corporation and a licensed contractor in California and Arizona. His personal residence was featured in a cover article 
in one of the world's largest renewable energy magazines, Home Power. He owns a large wildlife preserve next to Lake Shasta, currently in Northern California. Dane made the decision to focus all of his efforts and energy on full-time investigation of the geoengineering slash solar radiation management issue when he began to lose very significant amount of solar uptake due to ever-increasing solar obscuration and global dimming caused from the ongoing jet aircraft spraying and aerosol dispersions overhead. Dane has also noted a significant and accelerating decline in overall forest health, along with increasing UV radiation levels. These factors and others were catalysts that triggered Dane Wigington's testing and research into the entire geoengineering issue, which has now been ongoing for over a decade and a half. So without further ado, Dane, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for your willingness to continue addressing the climate engineering issue, which at this point I would argue is mathematically the the greatest and most dire untold story on the planet, environmentally speaking. One of the presidential candidates, Tom Steyer, the one of two billionaires that are running for the Democratic uh, nomination, has very loudly and repeatedly proclaimed and put his money where his mouth is that if he is perchance elected, that the global climate problem will be his number one concern. Have you attempted to send your materials and your research to uh, Mr. Stiers? Activists that we work with have, and like all other high-profile individuals in the political arena, nothing ever comes of that type of efforts. This is simply the no-go subject, and we have other candidates like Yang pretending that climate engineering is some sort of proposal that we may might do someday. Um, it's truly a th- political theater of, of the absurd, and again, the the gravity and immediacy of what's unfolding cannot be overstated, and there's simply, Richard, no legitimate discussion about the climate or the state of the climate without first and foremost addressing climate engineering. So there's no chance that any of these individuals don't know this is going on. I would argue they're simply not willing to face or address the issue because they all know how long their leash is. They know what would happen if they tried. The side of me. You know, I, I, I kind of wonder about that because I've tried to introduce, you know, our research to various levels of government and people in public office. And it's not so much a conspiracy as an internal inability to imagine that other people, other you know, agencies on the planet would be, A, willing to carry out this kind of a program, and B, would have the resources and the technology to carry out this program. And we hear about acts of God over and over and over again. And I really wonder if the problem is not internal, where it's simply the inability of these individuals to, to uh, you know, believe in the unbelievable, in, in the incredible, that is the biggest uh, hang-up to getting them to take it seriously. In some cases, perhaps, but in many other cases, we know that is not the scenario that's playing out. And I've had personal meetings with Governor Newsom in his office, Sacramento, his top aide. They certainly know this is going on. Did not even try to refute the data we presented in his office. I presented in front of the California State Energy Commission, the full board, in 2009 with the state's top scientists there. At that meeting, because the meeting was called, Richard, because the state knew even then. When you hear about California's drought and, and the statement that it's three, four, five years old, that's absolutely not true. It's from it, started in 2007 in direct correlation to events that happened in the Arctic. We can go into later if you choose, but um, in 2009 in the Capitol in Sacramento in front of the state energy commission at that meeting, again, presenting geoengineering data to the commissioners and the state's top scientists at that meeting, a, because the state knew it was losing 20 to 40% of its rainfall from quote particulates of unknown origin at that meeting, a purchase for a $200,000 spectrometer from Scripps Institute was approved, and that device was purchased and never seen from again. We don't know where it's at, where it went. Um, certainly, there was a very concerted effort to 
Make sure this issue doesn't. So come wait, to wait. Let me break. understand. The state of California bought this very expensive spectrometer, which I presume attached to appropriate optical devices to be able to do remote sensing on the composition of these particulates, which are causing the cessation of rainfall off the California coast. And you say it was never used. We don't even know where it's at at this point. Neither do they. So um, can the FOIA find it? Can who find it? FOIA, Freedom of Information oh, Act. Oh, FOIAs? Well, well, let's consider on the FOIAs. Um, the first FOIA we received back from NOAA on any information they had on, on any type of climate engineering in the continental U.S., the first response we got back from NOAA was a paragraph long stating that they didn't know about any type of weather modification anywhere ever in the United States. I've considered the scope and scale of that lie. They have to sign off on several hundred uh, continental U.S. weather mod programs a year, state and, and regional programs. So, I mean, they just basically flipped us the middle finger. We had to, the geoengineeringwatch.org attorneys sued at the U.S. Department of Commerce, which is the overseeing agency for NOAA, in order to get NOAA to release documents to us. Now, we've since received about... 2,100 documents from NOAA, about 2,000 of those documents are completely redacted. So this is, I mean, again, this is a climate engineering Manhattan project. It's the biggest untold story in the planet, and I would argue mathematically the greatest and most immediate threat we face short of nuclear cataclysm. Well, we have a lot of people uh, in this audience, global. We now know that from the numbers from TalkStream Live. We're up in the upper 20s of a 50-station um, uh, poll that's run through about 36 million listeners that uh, TalkStream Live monitors during its programming. And we're number four in their subcategory of, I hate this term, the paranormal, right behind Nori. Since we have a lot of new people, maybe we ought to go back to the beginning and have you outline the evidence, the evidentiary trail that you have over the last decade and a half been able to to uh, follow the so-called paper trail of when geoengineering actually began uh, on this planet, actively pursued by, among other agencies, the U.S. government. Based on all available data, climate engineering programs, a.k.a. geoengineering, solar radiation management, were deployed right after World War II and have been ramped up at various intervals since. For your listeners that aren't clear on exactly what climate engineering, solar radiation management, stratospheric aerosol injection is, it's aircraft dispersing particulates, various elements, aluminum, barium, strontium, polymer fibers. When you, when you say particulates, again, it's not a technical audience. You mean tiny particles of something. Correct. Nanoparticulates in the range and even some of our atmospheric testing confirm this 20 to 100 nanometers. These are extraordinarily small particles. Again, people particles. will have no idea what a nanometer is. Is it a, a subfraction of a human hair in size? Yeah, so that's, that's where I was going. It's, um, if, if people understood how many um, of these particulates you could – you could fit, yes, across the span of a human hair. I mean, depending on which size nanoparticulate we're talking about. But if it was 100 nanometers, it's uh, one-tenth of a, of a micron that, you know, th these particles are – let me put this in perspective to the smallest air particles that are tested for by official agencies, which are 2.5 microns. So these particles are exponentially smaller, and they go completely undetected by all official air monitoring agencies. So thus, when – there's a report of air that's moderately um, acceptable. It's, it's a complete fallacy because none of these more lethal particles, the smaller the particle, the more lethal it is, the more bioavailable it is, the more bioaccumulative it is. And none of these particles are even being looked for, let alone acknowledged. Hmm. So the instrumentation that the agency, the EPA and others are using to measure air quality Literally, these particles are so tiny, hundreds of times smaller than their detectors are, are set for that they're not even seeing them. And that's no accident. I would argue that's exactly the way the system has been set up. I've been in 
meetings with top EPA officials in Sacramento arranged by a congressional rep, five top EPA officials in one closed door meeting told to my face, the entire system is rigged. They are told mandated to test for combustion particulates only the rest of the sample goes out the window. And we're talking about even particles that are large enough for them to even acknowledge, but, this is this whole system has been set up not to show these programs because consider the lethality of this. The entire biosphere has been irreparably in any time frame that matters contaminated with these particulates. They've caused irreparable damage to each and every one of us, to the biosphere as a whole, the climate system, ozone layer. The liability issues here, not just for our government, but but all those involved, either actively or passively, are incalculable. If the population found out this was occurring, Richard, I would argue it would overturn the current paradigm. Not that our troubles would be over by any means, but I would argue it would cause a shockwave around the globe. Well, here's the paradox. You and I, before we went on the air, were both talking that in California, Northern California, where you are tonight, and here in New Mexico, where I am, we both noticed a strange kind of graying out of the sky during most of the day. And you termed that a polar sky. If you can look up and see it with your eyeballs, how can the agencies claim that there's nothing going on? Because they make it up as they go. We've had about 18 new cloud types identified in the last decade as if those clouds magically somehow appeared from nature. Oh, you mean they never existed before the 20th century? Well, you know, this is, this is again, the position of NOAA and, and NWS, National Weather Service, that they just – Nobody observed this before, and, and they, there's no acknowledgement of why this would occur, of course. But in the case, many people, if you say a polar sky, they, they picture a certain featureless gray canopy. And even that, that we associate, that many associate as being some sort of normal, natural phenomenon over the polar regions, I would argue it absolutely isn't. That's where they first geoengineered, over the polar regions. That's one of the reasons why the ozone layer first began to disintegrate over the southern pole. And we know that climate engineering operations, the, the injection of aerosols into the atmosphere will damage the ozone layer and has damaged it. And I'm not negating the other sources of damage, but I'm saying mathematically climate engineering is by far the largest source of damage. So as they've ramped up these programs, those so-called or, or polar skies, if people can envision what they have seen in in the polar regions. Well, let me. Let, that, most people have never been to the polar regions. Like most people, are not going to fly to the moon. So we have to describe it the way they see it. When I was looking at the sky this afternoon, because I have a solar wall, and I depend on the solar wall to convert sunlight into radiant heat, so it relieves the heat load on like furnaces and electric heaters and all that. So I'm really kind of monitoring the sky to see whether we're going to have a clear, gorgeous New Mexico, brilliant deep blue, which gives maximum energy for the solar wall, or it's something less. And when I looked up, it was like a pale, watery, bluish, maybe with some lighter colored streaks where it was uneven uh, clouds or uneven aerosols or whatever. It, it was obvious, but it wasn't flat gray. It was... You could see sunlight, but the shadows and everything was very diffused because the amount of sunlight getting through is a fraction of it does on a brilliant, clear day here. Anyway, look, we are at the uh, bottom of the hour, so why don't we hold it there? My guest this morning is Dane Wigington, and we're discussing the unthinkable that for the last 70-plus years, someone has been tinkering with the environment, the skies, the groundwater, the living, breathing space of every living human and every animal and insect on the planet by artificial means. Is Australia burning? Yes. Are we to follow in this coming summer? We're going to talk about that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. 
liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, January 19th, 2020. My guest this morning is geoengineering expert. I mean, you really had to dig to find out that this was going on. What was what were the steps you took, Dane, to understanding that this mega scale planetary engineering process was literally going on pole to pole? Well, again, in the regions it was going on at that time when first deployed, if that's what you're referring to, you know, we would yep, have yep. Li- limited limited data other than the polar regions because we had even Stanford University reported in the f- mid-50s that they were encountering what they termed an Arctic haze, and they detected aluminum in that haze, and they they had difficulty or, or they could not determine where that would have been coming from. Now, if we look at Senate documents, presidential documents, which we have posted at geoengineeringwatch.org, some of them, one of them, 800 pages long, others of several hundred pages, but they refer to the programs, the length of time the experimentation had been going on. They had budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars, even going back a half century. Uh, we have President Johnson in 1962, then vice president stating on the record at the beginning of every one of my weekly uh, East and West Coast broadcasts, stating on the record that we had the power to control the world's cloud cover. This is in 1962, and he went on to say, he who controls the weather controls the world. This is on film and on the record. Lyndon B. Johnson, former U.S. president. The data is there. It's clear. And we also have, Richard, and this is very telling, they would have had to beta test before – they deploy these programs, of course, and we found on military archives uh, the B-17 bombers. Richard, you know many people are, are actually refer to the large trails they left as proof that that's just condensation. You've heard that argument oh, before, Oh, yes, right? yes, many times. Well, I challenge those people to look at the film footage we have. We recovered up close, filmed from a second B-17 that was right underneath another B-17 with the massive dispersion shut off instantaneously as it was cut with a knife across the entire section of wing, clearly not condensation, clearly dispersion. Other B-17s are visible in the same flight pattern, some leaving a dispersion, some none. So clearly, so, so you're, you're saying the video, the, the film shows someone basically through a valve and stopped the tanks from being emptied through the nozzles on the back of the wing. There is no question that what was being emitted from that aircraft was not condensation. There's no question. We have up-close footage. Uh, your listeners can search geoengineeringwatch.org. Uh, I think it's under – if they search B-17 bombers, um, they should find that footage. It's in some of my major presentations on the homepage as well. We have that footage. Uh, there's no question in, in regard to so, – So this was during the closing years of World War II over Europe, over the European theater? Absolutely. So we were simultaneously bombing Germany back to the Stone Age, um, a la Curtis LeMay, and we were testing these programs because even then there were there were intimations that there were serious issues ahead that, that someone wanted to forestall. Would that be correct? Absolutely. And also, again, weather as a weapon. It's been used as a weapon. We have some historically documented instances where they couldn't hide that project Popeye in Vietnam. There's no question whether has been used as a weapon for the entire length of these programs. Oh, the DOD blatantly bragged that it was basically making the Ho Chi Minh trail a soggy mess through, through aerial spraying and other geoengineering activities over Vietnam. Correct. And if we look at global temperatures, as global temperatures approached the near the end of world war two, they were spiraling straight 
straight up. Then, immediately after World War II, there was an inexplicable leveling off of those temperatures. Now, we, we cannot and have no way to determine what may be data falsification or what was an actual reduction. But before the negative aspects of climate engineering kicked in, i.e. ozone destruction, forest dying all over the globe and burning, before those negative aspects manifested, climate engineering likely had a very profound effect as they engineered over the polar regions. So as we see this leveling off of temperatures immediately after 1945 that could not be explained scientifically based on existing knowledge of the protracted warming that should have continued, by the time we get to 1975, and that leveling off of temperatures was still holding, you had some of the climate science community, you, you remember this, I'm sure, Richard, stating that they didn't know why it wasn't warming in the same, uh, at the same trajectory, and they even speculated that perhaps there's an ice age starting to unfold. You, I you remember, remember in the 70s when I was were in New York, I was at the Hayden Planetarium, and then I did uh, kind of freelance pieces for a major magazine, American Way, which was carried on every one of American Airlines' you know, millions of flights around the world. And I remember looking at data, climate data, and in the 70s, there was concern that we were actually approaching another ice age because of this change in the uh, modeling and in, in the, you know, temperatures being married around the uh, United States anyway. And, and now that's held up by the so-called climate deniers saying, well, look, they were wrong then. They're wrong now. They throw everything out. You know, remember the the senator who brought a snowball into the floor of the U.S. Senate a few years Inhofe. ago, Inhofe, James Inhofe. Inhofe, and he basically said, "See, here's your global warming." All, of course, dog and pony to cover what you say is a very pernicious long-term campaign to control the global climate to prevent what? I mean. No one was doing anything in the 40s, and you say temperatures were skyrocketing. Does that imply that we're dealing with a natural trend that this geoengineering is trying to forestall? Oh, absolutely not. There's scientifically, statistically, mathematically, there's absolutely nothing natural about this trend. The buildup of greenhouse gases was occurring uh, for a very long duration before the end of World War II. The effects were manifesting. Those in power knew the effects were occurring. And in fact, we have even, to, to give an idea of the Arctic melt-off after World War II, we found on the Navy archives two U.S. submarines surfaced at the North Pole in open water in February of 1959. Now, that's something that's never been disclosed. We have that image in, in our 20-page fact and photo booklet on the homepage of geoengineeringwatch.org. So the melt-off was occurring very radically and rapidly. They knew that. Though it was not highly published, it was certainly uh, not difficult to project where we were heading when we're pumping that much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. So to keep business as usual... Well, wait, 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 wait. You said a moment ago that they were doing the geoengineering and testing in the polar regions, which is the most sensitive. If you spread aerosols over the polar region you can actually flip the curve. You can wind up with enhancement. You can wind up with warming as opposed to reflecting sunlight back into space and getting cooling. Were these 1950s leads and these submarines visible in the open water, was it the result of their own fledgling geoengineering efforts? Well, again, I, I would argue that no. Even though, yes, you have a heat trapping effect as well, but the combination of SRM, solar radiation management, that would attempt to reduce some of the daytime highs during the peak of summer when the sun never sets. And again, this is, this is part of the more complex aspects of climate engineering. And now let's add chemical ice nucleation for weather modification and sea surface chemical nucleation, which we can see on satellite imagery and we have photographed, logged, posted, Nucleating the sea surface with chemical ice nucleating okay, elements. Okay, you're probably going to have to define nucleating. It, it sounds to most people like nuclear, oh, atomics, you know. What, no, what is nucleating? No, chemical nucleating elements. Endothermic reactant oh, elements. Dang, dang, dang. Please stop using gar you know, slang terms. Use Nucleating is if you have a clear water and then you put a little particle of, of dust in it, it suddenly becomes a... a, a ice it becomes a 
center for accreting more ice. So that's the nucleation you're talking about. What? No. No? No. I'm not just talking about that. Yes, you need a particle of dust for something to nucleate around, but you can enhance that nucleation depending on the elements you involve. Just like a first aid kit that sits on a shelf for 20 years at room temperature and you mix those chemicals together. And because it's an endothermic, and I'll explain that term, Richard, I know you know what it is, but to your listeners, that's an energy absorbing reaction as opposed to exothermic explosion. An explosion would be an energy releasing reaction. So we have an energy absorbing reaction with chemicals that are designed to do exactly that. And thus they can nucleate and cause, for example, precipitation that should have fallen in liquid form at temperatures approaching 50 degrees to nucleate into ice. Mm -hmm. And these are chemicals like urea. We have surfactants in the mix. We have barium. We have ammonium. So So if you can tinker together the right chemical composition of your dust particles, your nucleating particle, when you spray them out the back of a jet aircraft at 40,000 feet, these particles of a specific chemical mix will have specific desired effects on the surrounding atmosphere. And in this case, they would cause the air to, to uh, glom onto the particles, freeze, and then fall to the ground. Exactly. And how many, how many examples do we have right now, Richard, of the radical weather whiplash scenarios just happened on the eastern seaboard again, temperatures in some regions pushing 80, and then suddenly with a flow of moisture out of the record warm Gulf of Mexico, they need a lot of water to carry out these operations. Suddenly the temperatures swing to 30 degrees below normal and snow is falling. Massive cotton ball looking snowflakes that look nothing like historically naturally nucleated snow. And some of these flakes begin to fall at 45 degrees. We've seen it at 48 degrees and even higher. Do people forget? I mean, so many people uh, of the older generation that should remember certain basic parameters under which snow fell. And now we have the, the Weather Channel paid liars, and that's exactly what they are, trying to cover the tracks of the climate engineers, explaining away the so-called winter storms, winter storm Jacob, that's happening now. They theatrically name these storms so that they have maximum sensationalism. And they try to explain away... Wait, wait, wait. What's sensational about Jacob? <laughs> uh, when, you start, when you start naming winter storms, which is a recent phenomenon, uh, perhaps Jacob doesn't sound so theatrical. Many of their storms do. I mean, they, they, they pick very theatrical names. So this is part of the sensationalizing of these engineered winter events. So, but wouldn't sensationalizing storms cause more public attention to the anomalies the associated with these storms? Well, the goal is to cause attention. If I let me finish this thought, when they're on a planet that's in absolute meltdown, we don't face global warming. We face something far worse. We are free falling into an abrupt climate collapse. So when they can engineer a winter event, even though it was record hot a day before. Suddenly it's record cold and people relax again. Oh, you know, everything must be fine. There can't be any global warming. Look at the snow outside. Yes, they absolutely want to sensationalize those winter events, Richard. That's why they piled up the snow in Boston in 2014. You remember how many headlines there were about that? Remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the same exact time, did you see any sensationalized headlines about the fact that, oh, by the way, there's no snow 14,000 feet up in the Sierras? Didn't see that. So I'm saying, yes, they sensationalize the engineered winter events, and they confuse and divide the population in doing so as to the true state of climate collapse. Okay, so let's summarize again so we don't lose anybody. Beginning around World War II, you believe a pilot program was conducted simultaneously with the wind down of the war over Europe, spraying from B-17s, the very large fleets of B-17s we uh, Curtis LeMay sent to bomb, you know, Germany, and they use that data to then model a, an active program following the war that was global in expanse, probably piggybacked on the newly formed Strategic Air Command, which had the bombers and the, you know, bases and all that, to moderate, to interfere, to engineer the global climate um, against the inevitable accumulation of CO2, fossil fuel burning, 
by modern industrial society, which was inexorably causing global temperatures to creep higher and higher and higher. Is that an accurate summation? It is, and I think it's important to include this with that. For those that still are trying to convince themselves that the changes we are seeing are somehow some part of a natural cycle, statistically, mathematically, and these calculations have been done, the odds of the current Earth changes being natural is a statistical zero. The changes that are occurring on our planet right now are conservatively, mathematically happening 170 times faster than any previous paleo event on our planet. There's nothing natural about what is occurring. And we also have to add methane to the equation. Not talking about cow flatulence (laughs) as is used often to polarize people and, and make them angry so they stop thinking rationally. But we have massive methane deposits on the planet. Bermuda Triangle is one. Methane releases along the seafloor there for many decades. As these fields release in their entirety, it aerates the water like a bottle of champagne. The ships on the surface. Now, let, let me ask this because there doesn't seem to be much mixing between the, the ocean miles down on the surface. How are these clathrate deposits, methane and other things, under the sediments of the seafloor? How are they warmed to where they will allow the methane to escape and reach the atmosphere, the surface? Because the planet is warming, and it doesn't take a significant amount of warming to release some of these fields. It can be it can be two or three degrees. And it absolutely has been happening, and this is scientifically scientifically accepted phenomenon now that methane release is what has been the source of the vessel sinkings, even the planes overhead, Richard. Well, but, but you, you just went into a whole other area that we have to give people more background on. The Marina Triangle is known for mysterious disappearances of ships. One of the models that I've seen recently is when you release gases underwater and they rise rapidly to the surface – the ships on the surface caught in such a maelstrom lose buoyancy and they sink very rapidly within within you know minutes or maybe even seconds and the release of the gases we're talking about are these sub you know ocean floor deposits of methane clathrates that you say a change of only a few degrees at that ocean floor is enough to release large volumes of these gases as they change back into their, you know, um, natural components. Yes. Okay. Just so everybody keeps tracking what we're saying. I'm surprised that it's that delicately balanced. That's really fascinating. It is. It is a very fine balance. And there's now these hydrate, clathrate deposits releasing all over the globe. Let's look at, I would challenge your listeners or encourage your listeners to search uh, Siberian methane craters. Holes. Yeah, holes. Craters, I think, will come up better on the search, but in any event, it looks like a massive nuclear war occurred. I think you've seen these, these craters, and this is methane blowing literally into the surface in massive explosions. These craters are several hundred feet across, sometimes 200 feet deep. This is occurring on the seafloor on a much larger scale. And when we have in the Laptev Sea in the Arctic, for example, that is a very shallow uh, seabed there. And it's highly susceptible to warming. And it appears that a significant methane release has recently occurred there. And we have seen in the last two weeks, much of the official methane, atmospheric methane monitoring data appears to have been scrubbed, cut in half or less than half. They're trying to hide the magnitude of what's unfolding right now. Hmm. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes to the top of the hour. Let's switch to Australia. What the hell is going on in Australia, which, as I read at the top of the show, has an aerial fire problem that's almost two orders of magnitude larger than the problem in the continental United States. Why Australia? Well, it's one of the major land masses in the Southern Hemisphere. And I would argue, and we have posted reports to corroborate this, that as Antarctic sea ice is disintegrating in the myopic 
mentality of the military industrial complex, they simply want to put as much particulate matter in the atmosphere as they possibly can. So this is a, one form in which they can mimic a new a, a volcano. So wait, wait, wait. You're saying these fires are being deliberately set? What I'm saying is this. The template that has allowed these fires to burn with the ferocity they're burning is absolutely a direct result of climate engineering and its consequences. Okay, you have to describe the sequence of events because you're not saying there are secret government agents going out at night with, you know, gasoline torches and setting whole forests on fire in Australia, right? I have I've never ever made any such statement. I never would. The source of ignition is not a an area of investigation for geoengineeringwatch.org. There could be countless sources of ignition. That's not our point or our focus. The template has been set. What does that mean? What, what does that mean? The template has been set. The conditions that allowed these fires to burn with this ferocity. I'm still not understanding you. You're saying that the environment itself has been so changed by the spraying, all this stuff coming down and sitting in the soils, on the trees, in the plant life, you know, covering the planet from decades of the spraying, that when a fire starts, regardless of its cause, it literally is like exploding a bomb compared to previous epochs of fires on, in Australia and here, right? Not exactly. Although these particulates are incendiaries, there's no question about that. We know what the materials are. We've done lab tests all over the globe. Aluminum, for example, barium, the smaller the particulate, the more highly incendiary it is. We know these particulates are are incendiaries. Because because of the mass to surface area ratio, right? Correct. And these these materials are used in demolitions in the case of uh, aluminum nanoparticulates, thermite, and so forth. Mm -hmm. But there's much more to the equation. The climate engineers can and are controlling the flow of precipitation. So when you have forests that have been dried out over many, many years, when you have soils that have been highly compromised, not just from drying, but from these bioavailable materials that are in the soils, in the case of aluminum, we have peer-reviewed study to prove that when root systems sense aluminum, they shut down nutrient uptake. They begin to die a slow, protracted death, and we know Aluminum is in the precipitation. So we have root systems dying, soils drying out. We have a decimated ozone layer that's killing the trees from the top down. We have an ionized atmosphere. It's more electrically conductive. And we we know that climate engineering reduces overall precipitation. There's no question about that for many aspects. When you block direct sunlight, you reduce evaporation. When you put a particulate cloud across the entire surface of the globe and to one degree or another, you radically reduce uh, convection, which in turn reduces wind, which in turn also reduces precipitation. So we have this drying out effect. We have, again, contaminated soils, destroyed ozone layer, more dry lightning, because again, the ionized atmosphere is more electrically conductive. From every imaginable direction, though climate change is is not being denied in anything I'm stating, but in the case of the fires, they are most directly attributable to climate engineering, its effects and its consequences. So it's having an exacerbating effect by orders of magnitude over previous conditions. Absolutely. And now let's add radio frequency microwave transmissions that can and are being used to oh, create. Oh, you got to explain that zones. one. <laughs> well, when we have many of your listeners, I'm sure have heard of HARP. So HARP is an ionosphere heater. It's a ground-based microwave transmitter, extraordinarily powerful. It's directional. This transmission can be bounced off the now reflective atmosphere from aerosol spraying operations. So ionosphere heaters cause an electrical chain reaction in the ionosphere, heating it to extraordinary temperatures, creates a bulge in that level of the atmosphere that pushes the air up and down. That downward compressing air can create high pressure zones that spin clockwise in the northern. Who was, who, was, who was the guy who came up with Harp Eastland? I think his name was a physicist. Bernard, Bernard Eastland. Eastland. Okay. Didn't he describe? Didn't he describe in his original patents the idea of weather modification through the facility yes, located in Alaska? And of course, now there are Harp type facilities, not called that, but same technology, all over the world. 
That's correct. That's exactly correct. So when we have acknowledged these stationary high-pressure domes... So wait a minute. Let me, let, me, let me stop you there. If in Eastland's patent for HARP geoengineering, massive continental-scale weather modification was listed as one of the capabilities, why do people deny people like you who say, well, not only is the capability there, but they're using it to do that? Where does the, the breakpoint come? Because we live in an Orwellian world where people would rather believe the official lie than what they can see with their own eyes. In regard to what we're seeing in our skies, let me cut to the chase on this, the whole condensation trail narrative, the perhaps the greatest deception ever perpetrated on populations of the planet. When we have film footage of military tankers at altitude, up close, Nozzles visible, turning on and off, turning dispersions on and off. That's the end of the argument. There's no speculation. There's no theory. There's no hypothesis. We have film footage. It's occurring. They're spraying in our atmosphere, period. Okay. But you say people look at that and they're in denial because they, A, don't understand what they're seeing, or B, they don't want to understand. Well, in regard to the population, um, it's a little of both, but I would argue the B answer is, is more prevalent. Uh, people simply uh, would rather think happy thoughts than face harsh well, realities. But again, Dane, isn't it really, you know, God controls the weather? And you're dealing with people who think of the scale as beyond human capability and technology. Oh, man cannot do that. I've heard that a million times when I try to discuss these subjects. Oh, we, there's no way men and women could influence the planet. It's like it's the failure of imagination to imagine, A, the technology is there, and B, that their own people, meaning the people that they put into office and are in the military, would be actively using it, in essence, ultimately, against them. Well, again, people have been trained in certain arenas and demographics to accept that type of simplistic narrative without any conscious thought as to whether that's a rational or reasonable narrative or not. We've cut down the forests, we've poisoned the oceans, we've paved the planet, we're filling the atmosphere with 100 million tons of CO2 a day, now let's add the methane, now let's add tens of millions of tons, and that's a stated goal by the climate engineer, tens Tens of millions of tons of nanoparticulates, global dimming has been created. We know this scientifically, statistically, that direct sunlight now, depending on the study, has diminished 20 plus percent, higher in some regions like Siberia. Some studies show it as high as 30 percent. How could that not affect the weather? And, and let's boil this down even more, if I may, Richard, then I'll give this back to you. We don't have time. After the We're right up at a heartbreaker at the top of the hour. We'll pick this up when we return. My guest this morning is Dane Wigington, who is a geoengineering specialist who spent the last 10 plus years trying to figure this out from the available public sources of data. And then he has had some interesting leaks. And when we will get into that when we, uh, when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because 
Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>